Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Critical History. I'm your host, Adam Schwalbe. Today, we will be discussing 9th century Byzantium, the troubled continuation of the Roman Empire. We shall discuss its problems leading up to and in the beginning of the century, then discuss the turning point for the fortunes of the empire, the ascension of Basil I to the throne. Let us begin with Byzantium in Italy. Part 1. Basil's Time and Context The empire had been locked in a centuries-long struggle for control of the Italian peninsula. It had originally been part of the Western Roman Empire and had slipped out of Roman hands when the West fell, Italy being conquered by the Ostrogoths. For a short time, a series of puppet emperors were placed on the imperial throne, but soon all they abandoned all pretense and stopped this appalling farcical. It was at this point that Roman control of Italy was no more. In the 6th century, however, things were to change for the Basilius of Byzantium. Uh, just a note, Basilius is the Greek word for king. It is the title that Byzantine emperors traditionally took. Was Justinian I, who, with the help of his legendary general Belisarius, reconquered the peninsula. However, Byzantine domination of Italy would not last long, for the empire had many frontiers, and once the Byzantine armies were called to the Iberian, Sassanid, and Balkan fronts, imperial hold on the peninsula was largely unbacked by military force. This opened the way for an opportunistic land grab invasion by the Lombards, who conquered northern Italy, leaving the empire in control of only the southern half. Imperial hold was whittled away by the next force to sweep Italy, the Muslims, which we shall discuss later. And so, by the mid-9th century, the once vast imperial theme of Italy was reduced to a couple of small outposts and towns. At this point, though, things were not totally looking down for the empire. The religious leaders could breathe a sigh of relief, for a major religious crisis was over, that of iconoclasm. Before we get into it, a note about sources. History is written by the victors, and in this case, the victors, the iconoduels, have almost certainly put a deal of bias into their chronicles. I have omitted some of the most obvious biased facts, but keep this in mind for the following section. A century prior, in reaction to perceived loss of divine favor resulting from losses in the perpetual Muslim wars, Leo III had started a process of destruction aimed at religious icons, a doctrine known as iconoclasm. He begun this most terrible purge by targeting the massive statue of Jesus outside of the imperial palace. Considering that the church had never condemned icons, this might seem like the ravings of a paranoid lunatic bent on becoming unpopular. However, there was certainly a strong foundation to these beliefs. Firstly, Leo III had grown up in the Middle East, and it is probable that his views towards religiosity were influenced by Islam, which prohibits divine artwork. Adding credence to this thesis is the fact that once iconoclasm became official church doctrine, the most support came from the Asian part of the empire, a part that was, by proximity, more susceptible to Islamic influence. Iconoclasm in the East may show the crisis is political motivations as well. A great majority of the imperial army came from the Anatolian themes, and the emperor declaring iconoclasm would surely earn him the respect of his, the army. Secondly, the veneration of icons had grown to a point where they were venerated like idols. From an outside perspective, one might assume that they were, with people praying to them and in some cases even naming them as godparents. And of course, idols were forbidden by the Ten Commandments. Whatever the cause, the ban on icons had begun. 
Magnificent artwork was thrown into the flames, statues were toppled and shattered. For all the destruction, however, iconoclasm was not officially supported by church canon. This would not be the case until Leo's successor, Constantine V, summoned an ecumenial council to make it so. The Council of Hieria was the result, and it was regarded by many as a sham. Clergy were handpicked for their iconoclast views, and none of the five great patriarchs were present, including the Pope or papal delegates. It was foregone that they would find in favor of iconoclasm, and in doing so, they lent religious credence to the idea, previously persecuted solely by the political arm of the empire and a few errant clergy. Tone would start to soften somewhat on the ascension of Leo IV, Constantine V's successor. He attempted to bridge the divide between the two factions, but underestimated the amount of vitriol each side had for the other. There would be no reconciling. Overall, Leo IV is an unimportant figure in the story of iconoclasm, but the next emperor, or rather empress, would be important indeed. When Leo died, his son, Constantine VI, was too young to inherit, so the regency passed on to his wife, Irene of Athens. She was ambitious, politically savvy, and quite a character. Her decision on the fate of the icons was clear, they would be reinstated. Indeed, she had actually worshipped icons in secret, even though their prohibition under her husband, Leo's reign. She called for a second council to be held in consideration of the iconoclasm issue, and unlike the previous council, this group was not biased. It importantly included papal delegates. The iconoduel, or icon-loving, Western Church would have a say and would be able to counterbalance the iconoclast Eastern bishops. Unsurprisingly, considering the popularity of icons in virtually every province save the Anatolian ones, the Second Ecumenial Council of Nicaea, as it would be called, ruled in favor of the iconoduels. The iconoclasts had been shattered for the time being, and Constantinople was restored to its former glory. Suspiciously, many of the icons that were supposedly destroyed returned overnight, and once more, the imperial capital was robed in its fine art and sophisticated style. Although much happened during the period 787 to 811 in terms of court intrigue, little happened in terms of the iconoclast crisis. Then, another emperor from the east fell into a similar situation to Leo III all those years ago. Leo V, hailing from Armenia, had inherited a series of military defeats by Crum and the Bulgarians, who we shall delve into in due time. Suffice it to say that Leo V was scared into instituting a second iconoclast period. This, however, did not last long at all. Only 28 years later would Empress Regent Theodora reinstitute the icons. This would be the definitive end of iconoclasm in the empire, and its end as a crisis would allow the energies of the emperors and empresses to be diverted to more pressing matters. Overall, iconoclasm could have been a turning point for the empire. Would it culturally shift east, or would it stay with the west? In the end, the influence of the pope and the Greek culture of the empire solidified its sway westward. However, the possibility that the empire might have shifted east is an intriguing one indeed. Might the schism have happened earlier? Would Byzantium have forged greater alliances with the kings in Armenia and Georgia? Regardless, by the time of Basil, iconoclasm had faded into the annals of history as a resolved crisis. The same could not be said for the Bulgars. The Bulgars were one of the two big military threats facing Byzantium in 850. How they got there is fascinating, but for the sake of concision, we will start with the rule of Crum in 802. 
Crum is a stereotypical medieval barbarian ruler in many regards. He was exceptionally brutal and bent on expanding the borders of the Bulgar state. He started out with an opportunistic land grab from the Avars, who had been militarily weak since being defeated by the armies of Charlemagne a few years prior. He ended up annexing Transylvania and parts of Hungary, forging an empire in the process. The next enemy on the chopping block would be the Byzantines, who, interestingly, were the ones to provoke Crum. For whatever reason, Emperor Nicephorus I decided to start raiding Bulgarian territory, and Crum responded in kind, besieging the city of Serdica. This siege is one of the first well-documented instances of his brutality. After promising the inhabitants their lives if they surrendered, he massacred them to a man. For Nicephorus, this was a step too far. He started out with simple raids of Bulgaria, and Crum had retaliated by massacring a city, perhaps out of a sense of perverted justice for the inhabitants of Serdica. Nicephorus assembled a massive invasion force and marched straight into Bulgaria, defeating two large elite Bulgarian forces and raising their capital, Pliska, to the ground. Indeed, during this occupation, Crum's brutality at Serdica was repaid generously. According to legend, children were whipped in the streets, seeds sowed with vital sustenance or the Bulgars were burned, and the orgy of death was nigh unstoppable. Crum, sad and distious capital subjected to such brutality, attempted to sue for peace, but Nicephorus would have none of it. He believed that Bulgaria was defeated and he need not negotiate. Soon, in his mind, the Bulgarian integration into the empire would begin. How wrong he would be, for after his olive branch was rejected, Crum gathered newfound determination and armed anyone who could wield a sword, including the women and peasants. Gathering this ragtag army, he then laid a trap for the Byzantine army at the Varbica Pass. The Byzantines, taking the path home that Crum had guessed, wandered right into the snare. They camped there for the night, and one can only imagine their fear when in the morning they saw in the wooden mountains towering over them a grand Bulgarian host. Byzantine morale steadily drained for three days. They were hemmed in on all four sides. In front of them lay a palisade guarded by the Bulgars. On either side, the Bulgars held the definitive high ground, and behind them lay the path to Bulgaria, a certainly hostile land where they would be sitting ducks for, for Crum's army. After allowing the Byzantines three days' demoralization, Crum finally attacked, slaughtering all, including, most importantly, the Emperor Nicephorus. Displaying his outlandish brutality yet again, Crum had Nicephorus's head coated in silver and made into a drinking goblet. This image is perhaps the best summary of Crum that can be given, drinking wine from the skull of his enemies, standing atop a mountain of Greek corpses. The path to Bulgarian domination of Greece certainly lay open, but first, Crum had to attend to matters at home. The Byzantine campaign had come at a significant cost to the Bulgarians. They achieved a Pyrrhic victory more than anything else. While he was attending to his country, however, his army was not remaining idle. They stormed into northern Greece and executed a characteristically barbaric stratagem. They moved entire populations of villages into the Bulgarian heartland. The amount of emotional damage this caused is incalculable. Tens of thousands of people were forced off their ancestral homelands and into tribal heathen territory. Equal to this emotional damage was the fear that this tactic caused among the Greek population, enough to persuade Emperor Michael I to throw together an army and advance out of the protection of Constantinople. But alas, he was forced to return due to court intrigue, 
and returned to the great city on the Bosphorus. It was now Crumb's turn to offer an olive branch for the Byzantines to reject. The rejection makes close to no sense. Byzantium did not have a hope for winning this war. Even if they managed to defeat Crumb's army again, the Khan could just simply turn to guerrilla warfare in the mountains, warfare that the Byzantine army was almost certainly not prepared for. Indeed, it would take the reforms and obsessive drilling of Basil II to defeat this Bulgar tactic. The Byzantine army in 811 did not stand a chance. Regardless of the tall odds, Michael rejected the peace, and the war dragged on. He raised another army and marched on the Bulgarians, meeting them at Versinikia. Although the Byzantine army was at least ten times larger than the Bulgarian adversaries, they did not attack. Instead, they tarried for thirteen days, their soldiers losing morale while wallowing in the harsh Balkan heat in full armor. Finally, the order to attack was given, and the right flank charged into battle. However, they were unsupported by the Anatolians, who were given responsibility over the center and left flanks. The attack failed miserably, and the Byzantines lost the battle. It is now that we enter the realm of speculation. Leo IV was a major commander and held respect within the Anatolian parts of the army. In addition, he was an iconoclast and might have been using a battle to try and depose Michael and bring himself to the throne, bringing iconoclasm with him. This theory has been backed by several historians, although it is much more speculative than one would like. Having annihilated two Byzantine armies, Crumb then turned his focus on the Golden Prize, that which had evaded every conqueror so far, the city of Constantinople. According to legend, he assembled a massive force to siege it, but before he could do so, he died. This timely act of fate perhaps saved the western part of the empire. For as long as Constantinople survived, Byzantium had a foothold in Europe. After Crumb died, there was a short period of instability within Bulgaria. Leo V took advantage of this to reclaim few towns along the border, and meanwhile he sent adversaries to his counterpart in Western Rome, Louis the Pious, for a possible alliance. A quick side note about Western Rome. Although the Byzantines did not consider Charlemagne's empire a continuation of the Roman, the fact remains that he was crowned Emperor of the Romans by the Pope. Therefore, for the rest of this episode, I will count the Frankish Empire as the Western Roman Empire. Whatever the case, an anti-Bulgarian alliance, as proposed by Leo, between the Byzantine and Frankish states would have certainly posed a grave danger to Bulgaria. Therefore, when the new Khan, Omertag, heard about this alliance request, he quickly sued for peace. Leo, anxious to repair his nation and divert troops to other fronts, readily accepted, starting a 30-year period of peace with Bulgaria. Bulgaria continued to periodically wage war on the, against the tribes around them, as pagans did, but in general, they were in a golden age. Omertag pursued administrative reform and, continuing a process that had been started by Crum, pursued policies that transformed Bulgaria from a loose tribal alliance into a modern kingdom. He eliminated the autonomy of the Slav tribes that would be answerable only to him, and created a then-modern provincial gubernatorial system of administration with the rulers of the several newly drawn provinces in Bulgaria being appointed by the civil and military services. He also integrated the army. Previously, Slavs and Bulgars had served in separate units, which he then integrated, continuing a process of assimilation common to nomadic foreign conquerors. The final major developed development that occurred during Omertag's reign was the reconstruction of Pliska, the Bulgar capital that was decimated by the Byzantines during Nicephorus' first campaign all those years before. The next two cons, Malamir and Prussian, did little for Bulgaria except for a series of wars, 
After the Thirty Years' Truce ended, they and Byzantium butted heads again and again, and by the time of the succession of Boris I in 854, they had seized much of Macedonia and Greece. The leader of Bulgaria during much of Basil's time was Boris I, who warred little with Byzantium. His reign was characterized by war with, with the Serbs and the adoption of Christianity, but during the rest of the 9th century, Bulgaria posed very little threat um, to the grand fortunes of Byzantium. Now for the final bit of pre-Basil history, the Arabs. The death of the Prophet and the expansion of Islam dealt a nearly fatal blow to Byzantium. The conquest of Egypt and the Levant, aside from the religious blow of losing three out of five patriarchates, removed the empire's major source of grain and an integral part of its economy. The empire was resilient, though, and it endured this massive loss of core territory. However, the expansion of Islam had started a period of nearly endless war, which continued up to the empire's death at the hands of Mehmet II. This, however, was far in the future, and by Basil's time, the two most pressing issues on the minds of the imperial leadership were the fight over Sicily and the Abbasids in Anatolia. First, we shall discuss the fight over Sicily. It started with it when the Tunisian emir Ziadat Allah decided to assist a certain Euphemius to reclaim governorship of the island. The war soon became one of conquest for the North Africans, and they conquered quite a bit of the southern Sicily before being stopped by the imperial navy at Acrae. The tides of war turned in favor of the Byzantines, who then nearly forced the Muslims off the island. Just when all hope seemed lost for the Aglubids, they were handed a lifeline in the shape of an Umayyad fleet sailing in from Al-Andalusia to help them. They fought on with renewed vigor and established a permanent presence on the island. These resultant Muslim states then expanded gradually through small-scale skirmishing and raiding, growing town by town, person by person. By the time of Basil, they were in control of much of Sicily. The Byzantines pushed back to the city of Syracuse. The Abbasids were not very territorially ambitious in Anatolia. For the most part, the caliphs in Baghdad were content with their borders. However, there was almost constant warfare as the Abbasids led nearly yearly raids against Byzantium, sometimes capturing a town or two. In general, they very much held the initiative, and although there was little real risk of territorial loss, the Byzantines were very much on the back foot, fending off the Abbasid raids as they came. Part 2. Basil the Macedonian The predecessor of Basil was the Emperor Michael III, and his story is one of a puppet. He was only two when his father died, leaving him sole emperor. He grew up with his mother, doing all of the work in governance, and it is here that we may find the reason for why he was so weak-willed. His mother purposefully disregarded his education, presumably so that she could continue to dominate him and rule de facto for the rest of her life. Aside from that, it is quite easy to forgive Theodora for her maltreatment of the young emperor, when one considers her actions in government. The first thing she did was to restore the icons discussed earlier. Again, this closed the book on a religious and social controversy that increased sectional tensions within the empire and put it at odds with Rome and the West. In short, this was an exceptional achievement. To put the issue to rest, she fired the iconoclast clergy and summoned another church council under the new patriarch, Methodius. She also worked to build up the imperial treasury. However, under her reign, another character managed to build up influence with Michael, his uncle Bardas. Bardas was very ambitious and constantly looking for ways to increase his own authority. He built up influence among Michael, virtually guaranteeing that he would become the de facto ruler once Michael came of age. However, 
Once Michael turned 15 and became the de jure sole ruler, Theodora refused to leave, forcing him to marry a woman named Eudokia Decapolitissa instead of his longtime sweetheart, Eudokia Ingerina. Bardas used resentment over this, and also his mother's refusal to leave, to convince the young emperor to hatch a plot to depose her. Her husband was murdered, and she was forced into a convent. At last, Michael's time, or rather, Bardas's time, had come. Bardas was not the complete train wreck one would expect a self-serving ruler to be. For starters, he invested in the then-failing University of Constantinople. For years, scholarship had been concentrated in the East. Baghdad, the city of holy wisdom, was the place where people got educated. Bardas changed that by funding all-star teachers like Leo the Mathematician and shifting at least one power dynamic back to Byzantium. His religious successes were prodigious as well. He beat back the Arabs at the Battle of Lalakeon, sponsored Cyril and Methodius in their efforts to Christianize the Slavs, and most significantly supported the Christianization of Bulgaria. Bardas did not last forever, though, and soon a new figure rose in the court, that of Basil. Basil was a giant of a man, intimidatingly tall and strong. Indeed, he first rose to the emperor's attention by beating a Bulgarian champion in a wrestling match. His personality traits were formidable as well. He was ruthlessly ambitious, ready to kill to advance his own position. He was also handsome and charming, giving him a social advantage. He started out as a lowly peasant, but because of his traits previously mentioned, he soon advanced through the ranks of the imperial civil service, first as chief equerry, then rising to the position of chamberlain. At this point, Michael's mistress, Eudocia Ingerina, became pregnant with a future emperor, Leo IV. As a bastard, however, there was no hope of the future Leo inheriting the throne, something Michael naturally wanted his future son to do. To guarantee succession, Michael ordered Eudocia to marry Basil, who, seeing an opportunity to solidify his position, hastily divorced his old wife and married Eudocia. Therefore, Michael had guaranteed succession for his child, and Basil had secured his position as an unofficial relative of Michael's. Basil's next rise in status came during a campaign against the Cretan Muslim Emirate, who were little more than pirates who raided Byzantine shipping. While on campaign, Basil convinced Michael that Bardas was plotting against him, and quickly getting Michael's approval, moved against Bardas, assassinating him. Michael and Basil quickly rushed back to Constantinople, where Basil was coronated Caesar and co-emperor. Basil was basking in the senior emperor's favor, but his favor was soon for to fade, for Michael was growing fond of a new courtier, Basiliskianos. Basil realized this failing, fading favor could be disastrous for him, so, just like with Bardas, he moved quickly with an assassination. One night, Michael and Basiliskianos got blackout drunk and stumbled back to their chambers, immediately falling asleep. In their drunken stupor, though, they made a fatal mistake. They forgot to post guards. A small group of assassins snuck in and murdered both of them. Basil was waiting and immediately proclaimed himself sole emperor. The reign of Basil had begun. The first thing for Basil to do was gain legitimacy with the local nobles. This was not hard as Michael III was not well liked, and even though Basil had ascended through two murders, he was still a charismatic, charming young man. What solidifies his legitimacy was his religiosity. He dedicated his crown to Jesus and championed the Orthodox faith throughout his reign. Basil had legitimacy, now the question was what to do with it. We shall start with his domestic policy. The most important internal improvement that Basil made was the new law codex he wrote, the Basilica. 
Although Justinian had done likewise 300 years prior, by this time the Byzantine law codex had become bloated and unwieldy. For one, Justinian had recorded his codex in Latin, then still nominally the language of the law. However, over time the empire had become much more Greek, and therefore few people could understand Justinian's code by Basil's time. In addition, 300 years of legislation had complicated the imperial law, and judges were often confused about contradictions within this jumbled mess of laws. Finally, the power of the judiciary had been severely restricted by Justinian. Judges were not allowed to set precedent, and were therefore slaves of the book, which only increased confusion even more. If they were supposed to reflect the law, then what should they do in cases where the law is contradicted? All of these factors made Justinian's once cutting-edge law code antiquated and confusing. Basil set out to fix all of that. He did not end up finishing the job. The bloated imperial law code proved too much of a task even for the mighty Basil, but he still accomplished most of it, compiling 40 books to his son's 20, and deserves at least partial credit. In any case, Basil translated the imperial law into Greek, sorted out the contradictions, and started compiling it into one work, a series of books aimed at lawyers and judges. Indeed, this law codification was so effective that when the Greeks rebelled against Ottoman rule a millennia later, they signed onto the Basilica as their official law code. The effect this had was predictable. It lifted the empire out of the legal dark age that it was in, and streamlined the legal process, removing excess costs and making the process more efficient. Let us now move to the subject of the Paulicians. These were a sect of Christians heretical to the Orthodox Byzantines, who had a couple of theological quarrels with them. In brief, they believed that there were two gods, an evil one of the material world and a good one of the divine. This led them to reject sacraments and indeed worship altogether. As a result, they were horrified by the materialistic Orthodox Church, with its ornate icons and magnificent churches and sumptuous feasts. They declared independence from Byzantium and sought a protector in Umar al-Akta, the emir of a small Anatolian city. Now, the Byzantines surely had the resources to make war on the Paulicians, even with their Muslim defenders. But the Byzantines under then-emperor Michael III had more pressing matters. For one, the Muslims in Sicily and Crete. Therefore, they did not try to persecute a war against them. This might have stayed the case if the Paulicians did not make a grievous error. The ascension of the Paulicians' new king, Chrysochir, meant that they now had a bona fide Byzantium hater on the throne. As such, he conducted several raids far into Anatolia, even as far as Nicomedia on the western shore of the peninsula. At first, Basil was willing to continue the old imperial policy of ignoring them and sent a peace offer. But this, Chrysochir spat on and demanded that the empire leave Anatolia altogether. This was too much to demand from such a small state. Although not from a large state, the empire would see that all too well after man's occurred. Byzantium then reluctantly raised an army and marched against them. The Paulicians' capital, Tefrike, fell within a matter of years, and this errant sect was crushed. What might the significance of the Paulicians be? For one, it shows an empowered empire. Under the Dark Age of Byzantium, from roughly the death of Heraclius to the ascension of Basil, they had been constantly forced on the back foot, losing territory left and right. Sicily, southern Italy, Egypt, the Balkans, the Levant, Syria, all of these fell without so much as an inch of land gained by the empire. However, the crushing of the Paulicians was certainly a signal of a new age, an age of an empowered empire, ready to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the formidable Saracens of the East. And it is this that we shall discuss now, the empire resurgent. Basil's contribution to the imperial borders came mainly in southern Italy.
As I have said previously, since Byzantium's high watermark in Italy under Justinian, their presence had been slowly whittled down to a few outposts. Their place was taken by two great feuding powers, the Frankish Empire to the north and the Muslim Emirates to the south. To the west, these emirates were a disaster, perhaps unrivaled even by the Umayyads of Spain. These Muslims were on the gates of the holy city of Rome, the seat of the papacy. In short, they had to go, and to do this, Basil would join forces with Western Emperor Louis II, who was moving against the Emirate of Berry, a Muslim state controlling the eastern tip of Italy. Louis had attempted to conquer Berry three times in the past, with no luck, but this time would be different, for Basil had pledged troops for a joint attack on the city. In 869, the armies of the two emperors moved in, but fell apart due to internal disputes. When the Byzantines arrived, they demurred when they found the Frankish army weak and ill-disciplined, nothing like the drilled legions of Byzantium. Likewise, the Franks got cold feet when the Byzantines arrived months late. The emirs of Barry must have been relieved when they saw this huge force dissolve before their very eyes. This, the do-over, saw much less Byzantine involvement, and inversely, much more success. Louis dragged his army to southern Italy, sieged Bari, and after a slight detour in which he crushed an African and Sicilian army, captured the emirate. The Byzantines were involved through a naval force that assisted Louis' army with the siege, but how significantly that force was depends on which chroniclers you believe. Whatever the case, Bari had fallen, and contiguous Italy was no longer home to any major Muslim states. The old emirate would eventually fall back into Byzantine hands five years later, and the consequence of its fall would ring well for the empire. The main short-term consequence of this conquest was Byzantine naval power in the Adriatic. Now, Byzantium had naval bases in Dalmatia, Greece, and Italy, and they were therefore the foremost power in said sea. The Venetians would have their time to shine later on. No longer would Muslim raiders contest the Byzantines for control of the Adriatic, and therefore it, along with all its lucrative trade, was controlled by Byzantium. The longer-term consequences of this was like the Paulicians, one of initiative. This signaled that Byzantium was back, alive and kicking, and it would take and hold the initiative for one and a half centuries afterwards, no longer limited to reacting to Muslim jabs. Basil's Reconquista ambitions were not limited to the Muslim emirates. At the end of his life, he dispatched an army led by one of Byzantium's most brilliant generals, Nicephorus Phocas, to recover southern Italy. This was done very easily. What few towns remained free of Byzantium, or free of Byzantine or Western Roman domination, were divided into few, and Phocas swept through like a windstorm, capturing them in the name of Byzantium. Overall, the reign of Basil signified a turning point in the fortunes of Byzantium. The legal confusion and military defeat that had reigned since the death of Heraclius was over. Although we will not delve into detail of the Byzantine triumphs of this era, suffice it to say that the army was vastly improved and reached a nigh-unbeatable state. The Bulgars were pushed back and the Balkans reclaimed. Relations with the Russians stabilized. Art and culture experienced a revival, commonly known as the Macedonian Renaissance, and Basil established a dynasty that would lead the empire through all of it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Critical History. Have any comments or questions? Don't hesitate to email me at adam.schwalbe1 at gmail.com. I have been Adam Schwalbe, your host for today, uh, and thank you for listening.